you join me taking your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15. For those of you who are guests today, we typically work our way through books of the Bible, and we happen to be finishing up the Gospel of Mark. Mark is 16 chapters. Chapter 15 is the account of Jesus' crucifixion, and we find ourselves beginning in verse 33. Today's going to be a bit different here in the second service this morning. You're going to have the opportunity to experience the sermon preparation process, and I hope, that's, that's my goal, and I hope this lands at least half as well as, as it has been conceived in my mind. And when, when I get to the privilege of preparing a sermon every week, and it is a privilege, God just, just does a work in my heart, and it's uh, sometimes overwhelming. And... Uh, my prayer for our church family is that we would be overwhelmed by the goodness and the presence and the favor of God. That we would, that we would have a fresh understanding of how amazing it is that Christ died for our sin and that he calls us to be his. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to interrupt my sermon and give you the opportunity to respond from what I hope would be the overflow of your heart to what God has shown you. Uh, sort of in section one. And then we'll do the same thing in section two. And then we'll have sort of our typical hymn of response at the end. But I want you to know that basically from now until we leave, uh, the front is open. Uh, if you want to pray while I'm preaching, you're welcome to pray while I'm preaching. If you want to pray while we sing a song, you're open. To, you're welcome to do that. And then I will call specifically for a response at, at the end of our time, and I've asked our staff to join me in prayer for our church in this Easter season and for you. Uh, I'll spell that out a little more specifically as we go. But I have a conviction and a suspicion that many of you, when we have an, an opportunity to respond, many of you, I think at one time or another, have wanted to respond publicly and you haven't because maybe it's a little bit taboo. Maybe everybody will think something's wrong with me. But you know what? A lot of times we respond because something's right with me. Because God has opened my eyes to see how beautiful he is. Or he's given me a fresh desire to know him and to serve him and to be joined with him in his mission. And so uh, you might say, well, the Bible doesn't say I ever have to come forward to, to trust him. or No, it doesn't. But you know what? It does say that God has saved the people to offer him thanksgiving. So that other people might in turn be thankful. And it might be, it might be this morning that someone would respond and just say, I'm overjoyed to belong to God. That your response of obedience would lead someone else to be thankful. So I don't know how the Lord might lead you to respond, but you'll have three opportunities this morning to respond to the grace of God. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 through 39. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion 
who was standing right, of, right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Would you bow once more with me? God, help us to see what the Roman centurion saw and to be changed for your glory and the good of our neighbors and the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, see, as we see Christ upon the cross, we are reminded, as we saw last week, that we should not underestimate the costliness of our sin. I don't know if any of you have ever been to like a business expo or a conference where you, you walk through displays and there's little booths and it's like everybody decided to buy junk. Right, like the cheapest pair of sunglasses ever, a little widget, a little thing, and you got this bag, and everybody runs through, and it's like Halloween or something, and they're like just trying to stuff their bag with junk. And then what do you do? You take it home, and you get the little football, and a little frisbee, and little glasses, and they end up in a junk drawer, and then one day you're like, why do I have this junk? And then you throw it away, right? I, when you go to an expo, Go to the booths that actually offer something valuable, worthwhile. Just, just, a, just an aside there. I hate when my kids come home with junk. Little fidget spinners that they never use. Whatever. T-shirt. Okay, T-shirt's not junk. But, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me how people get excited about stuff that's trivial and then they throw it away. Or into a junk drawer and then they throw it away. And my concern is that sometimes we do that with Jesus. He's free. He's available to all. I can pick him up tomorrow just as easily as I can pick him up today, we think. And we treat sometimes Jesus like he's cheap. We pull him out when we want to, put him back. But the cross of Christ and the experience of Jesus on the cross of Christ demands that we understand what we get from Jesus, that though it is freely offered, it is not cheap. It comes at a very high price, that he paid the cost of our sin. When we look to the cross of Christ and see what happens there, we should be led to grieve our sin and then live in grateful adoration of the one who gave his life for us. It's not just the physical pain and suffering, by the way, that causes us to look more closely in this passage, we see the agony of Jesus' alienation from his father. We see his confidence in his death. We see the consequence of his death in the tearing of the temple. And then we see the confession that Jesus is the son of God. By the way, this is the goal of Mark's gospel. Do you remember how Mark begins all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1? The gospel of Jesus Christ, who? The son of God. And then we've gone through the entire gospel and not one person has confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons have confessed it. But the Sanhedrin have not. The chief priests have not. The disciples have not. And now at the cross, as he breathes his last breath, a Roman outsider, a pagan centurion, gets it. Jesus is the Son of God. And because that is true, because this account leads him to that conclusion, there's three things that I want us to see in this text this morning. And the first is that Jesus experienced the alienation from his father that we deserved. Jesus experienced the alienation from his father that we deserved. In verse 
33, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours and darkness falls over the whole land and it lasts for three more hours. Jesus dies in darkness. The whole land, the Bible tells us, goes dark. You see, when the light of the world bears the sins of the world, the lights go out. Some have argued that it must have been a solar eclipse, but you can't have a solar eclipse at the full moon of Passover. Others have said, well, it must have been a dust storm, but you can't have a dust storm in the wet season of spring in Israel. Darkness at high noon can't just be explained away. You can't make sense of three hours of darkness at high noon other than that God himself is expressing his judgment against our sin born by his son. This is the judgment of God against sin. The day of the Lord is coming down on his son as Amos says. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Jesus endures three hours of darkness and he reminds us of the ninth and tenth plagues in Egypt. Do you remember Egypt? They hold the people of God in slavery for 400 years and God sends the first plague and Pharaoh does nothing and the second and the third and the fourth and six, seven, eight. And then you get to the ninth plague and you, you remember, praise team, there's three days of utter darkness in Egypt. Three days of darkness followed by the tenth plague and everyone remembers the tenth plague, right? It's the death of the firstborn son. What we see happening on the cross is a reenactment of what happened in Exodus, but in far greater fashion. God's not just going to free the people who are biological descendants of Abraham. He's going to free everyone who is a descendant of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes through three hours of darkness. Darkness that you knew, the alienating presence of, of sin in your life. The wall that it creates in your life is something that Jesus bore, that he understood in his own flesh, so that you could have access to God. The death of the firstborn sons in Egypt led to Israel's escape from slavery, and the death of Jesus, God's son, makes a way for all who trust in him to escape the dark and enslaving power of sin. You see, church, for the world to be remade in Jesus, he had to take the darkness of judgment upon himself, the God who spoke the world into existence, who brought the light out of darkness, is now engulfed in the world's darkness so that we can see that he is the true light. Wiersbe says it this way, the darkness of Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. And as that noonday darkness settles over the land, the dark reality of Jesus' alienation from his father settles deep down into his soul. How do we know this? Suddenly, we see Aramaic in the New Testament. Aramaic was Jesus' heart language. It was the language that he had learned as a little boy. Yes, Jesus knew Greek, the lingua franca of the day, but his, his heart language, his first language was Aramaic. In staff meeting on Tuesday, as we're walking through this text, I asked Brother Hope, I said, Hope, when you're out mowing the grass and you're meditating on the gospel and how great God is, because that's, that's when pastors get free time, is mental free time is when they're mowing the grass. You, don't, you, don't, you can't hear your phone, you can't feel it buzz. There's nobody, I love mowing the grass. It's like the one time I have an excuse in the world to not be available. And it's just me and Jesus and I'm out there mowing the grass. And I said to Hope, I said, when, 
When, when it just hits you how amazing God is. That he's given you a wife and a family and a lawn to mow. And, and he's working in your life. What, how does that express itself in your mind? English or Spanish? 100% of the time, Spanish. Now, for most of us, it would be English. But for Jesus, it was Aramaic. And so now here in the, in the New Testament, what Mark is showing us is that Jesus, who had always and only known God as his daddy, can't call out to him as his daddy. He, he can only say, my God, my God, what's, what's going on? Why have you forsaken me? Why? Some believe Jesus is calling for Elijah, the prophet, to help him. Elijah, that great prophet of Israel who had laid himself over the dead son of a widow and raised him from the dead. Elijah, that great prophet who was caught up in a whirlwind and did not even see death. But Jesus is not looking for even a great prophet to help him. He knows full well where Elijah is. He made Elijah. He's not looking for Elijah's help. He's looking for his father as he experiences the weightiness and the darkness of the alienating effects of our sin. Jesus has only known God as daddy. And now he knows him as judge. The sinless son feels, the, feels and experiences the separation that our sin brings. A separation he had never ever known. And he does this to be our substitute. On the cross, church, Jesus faces the horror of bearing our sin. And it is so great that in his dying breath, he senses separation from God. In our parenting of Elizabeth and Samuel, Stacy and I have come across this great book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, covers this event in this way with these words. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. Church, what can we say in response to so great a salvation? Is it not often true that our inability to find the right words then leads us to just not even try? But this morning, we're going to try. Frederick Leahy in his book, The Cross He Bore, says, It is my conviction and at times my sad experience that as the cross goes out of focus in the Christian's life, coldness and backsliding set in. Are you cold in your walk with Christ this morning? Meditate upon the cross. If our meditation upon the cross be meager, can our love for the Savior be great? Church, Jesus felt abandoned by the Father so that we might be adopted by the Father. Jesus was separated so that we might be saved. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Let's give him praise this morning for what he accomplished on the cross as we stand and sing hallelujah for the cross. When you think about the fact that Jesus bore the alienation that our sin deserved, it should lead us to praise God for the cross.
His alienation, by the way, brings us to our second point. Because Christ bore the alienation, the separation, the despair that our sin brings to our lives, Jesus, through his alienation, enables us to have access to the Father through his own death. His alienation becomes our access. Previously, in verse 23, Jesus declined the wine mixed with myrrh, but now in verse 36, he drinks the sour wine offered to him on a sponge on a reed of hyssop. And he does it to symbolize that he's drinking down the wrath of God so that when he returns in victory, we will partake of him with the fourth and final cup of Passover, the cup of nations, the cup of victory. The alienation, the separation, the despair, the loneliness, the brokenness that sin brings into your life has been taken by Jesus and crucified on the cross so that the wall which separates you from God can be torn down when you trust in Jesus and you surrender your life to his will. There are answers to your problems that you brought in this morning. There are answers to your financial problems. There are answers to your Marital problems, there are answers to the disappointments that life brings to you this morning. But those answers are outside of your ability to pursue unless you know Jesus Christ. Because every single one of those answers is going to involve some measure of self-denial and self-sacrifice that you can only be enabled and empowered to do when you surrender your life to Christ and find the joy of living for the one who laid his life down for you. It is there when you've been given access to God and are accepted that you are free to give up on yourself and your own way and gladly do whatever it takes to glorify Jesus. Jesus knows, by the way, full well what his death is accomplishing. He's in complete control. In verse 37, he utters a loud cry, Mark tells us, and breathes his last breath upon the cross. In Luke 23, 46, we learn that Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In 19, verse 19, chapter 19, verse 30 of John, we learn that he declares, it is finished. What is finished? Look at verse 38. The veil of the temple separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple complex. This massive curtain. We're not talking about like a little sheer curtain that you can just tear apart. This massive, huge drapery is torn from top to bottom. God himself rips apart the massive curtain symbolizing our separation from him. He honors the death of his son and the alienation that he faces by opening up access for sinners to know and enjoy a holy God. The tearing of the physical reminder of people's separation from God's presence tells us that the spiritual barrier between God and sinners is done away with in Christ's death. Edwards says it this way, at the death of Jesus, the veil between God and humanity is removed. The very presence of Yahweh is accessible not by the high priest and his sacrifice on the day of atonement, but by the atonement of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews summarizes it like this. We have confidence to enter into the holy places through the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain 
which isn't the curtain in the temple anymore. No, through his flesh. His death on that cross opens up access for every sinner who will deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow this risen Savior. The knowledge of God's glory and his presence and his majesty is no longer confined to the holy of holies. It's no longer confined to an inner room accessible only one time per year and by one priest each year. It is available because when Jesus became sin for us, he paved the way for the glorious and all-satisfying presence of God to be known, not in a house built with wood or with stone or with gems, but a house that is built in the hearts of men who he washed in his blood, the blood of his perfectly righteous son. Jesus died to take your place. He died to take your sin so that you could know and enjoy God's presence. Now the question this morning is, how are you doing? Are you enjoying the presence of God in your life? Are you walking clean before him and close with him? The litmus test that Jesus gives for us is what? Do you remember? It's a simple little verse in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you treasuring Jesus today? The litmus test is what your heart does when the pastor says, hey, we're not quite meeting budget. If God has blessed you and you'd like to support the work of the ministry more so, if your heart elevates and rises to that challenge and says, God, thank you. I want to be a part of that. That's good. If it recoils, that's not so good. You say, well, is it just giving financially? No, it's giving in all sorts of ways. When you're on the ball field and you hear that guy down a few a few people down the fence line talking about the divorce and how it's wrecking his family and it's wrecking his life and you think about well it wasn't that long ago that we went through evangelism training and we learned about the brokenness of the world and how God has a good design and through Jesus this guy could be healed his marriage could be healed am I going to stand there like a lump on a log and just keep looking at my daughter or son on the field or am I going to walk down there and say it sounds like your life is pretty broken right now and am I going to risk that he might make fun of me? He might say I'm off my rocker. We're enjoying the presence of God when we are willing to give whatever he calls us to give because of what we've already received through his son who died so that we can have access to him. Amen. That's the litmus test. Jesus Jesus is the final, he's the complete and perfect sacrifice for sins. At Calvary, the old covenant of anticipation gives way to the new covenant of fulfillment in Jesus. We don't come to God through an earth, earthly priest. We come to Jesus, we come rather through Jesus, our risen, ascended, and everlasting high priest. We don't sacrifice animals to cover our sin. We daily present our lives and our lips and our limitations and our livelihoods where we live, what we long for as a grateful sacrifice of thanksgiving to the son who took our place. God, where do you want me to live? I'll go wherever you want me to go. What do you want me to say? Well, God, I don't feel like I'm capable of doing that. I don't really like preschoolers that much, but there's a need over there. And I'm able-bodied and I've changed the diaper before. So if that's where you need me right now, by golly. I'll serve in the preschool. 
Some of y'all here this morning. <laughs> we no longer sacrifice animals. We give ourselves. And we give ourselves gladly and joyfully and gratefully because we've received so much more in our risen King. When Jesus cries out, it is finished. He is announcing that he has gained the victory over the separation that sin brings. Through his victorious death, we can have life. Because Jesus bore our separation, we can be saved. Because he bore our alienation, we now have bold and confident access to the Father. It is finished, church. The, the work of the gospel is accomplished. The good news happens there on the cross that he takes your place. He takes your alienation so that you can have access to the Father. But a question remains. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Specifically, do you believe in this one who died and took your place? We've got to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and take his gospel to all the nations. We've seen Jesus is treated like an outsider so that we can be brought into, his God, into God's presence. Which is possible because of who Jesus is. He's not just a human king, and he is. But he's also the eternally begotten Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Word of God, one with the Father. There's never a time when the Son was not. Because He's the Son of God and God the Son. God the Son assumes our humanity so that He can offer Himself as a substitute for sinful humanity. But death is powerless to hold Him because He's also the Son of God. And in his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he's now sent out the Holy Spirit, who I, I've been praying all week in this moment that the Spirit would be at work in this place doing what the Bible says the Spirit does. He glorifies the Son by testifying to the fact of that we're sinners and that God is righteous and that judgment is coming against sin, but there's a way for you to escape it and instead to belong to God. And that is through faith in Jesus who died for you. The judgment that we all deserve has been taken by Christ who all, for all who follow the example of the most unlikely of people in Mark's gospel. The Roman centurion. Not the disciples, not the Sanhedrin, not the chief priests. But notice... Notice where the centurion is standing in verse 39. Do you see that? Right in front of Jesus. My conviction almost every Sunday is, is that there are so many people who hear the word of God proclaimed, but they're unlike the Roman centurion, and instead they're like the people passing by. It's just another thing that happened that day. It's just another event in my life. I just checked the box of going to church. Don't let this be a box that you check. Let the Spirit of God do in your life what he did in the life of the centurion and cause you to stand before Jesus Christ crucified for me and reckon with what that means in your life. One of the primary ways, church, that we proclaim that we believe in Jesus is that we confidently and boldly take the gospel to those who seem the least likely to believe, like this Roman centurion. Did you know that God is still at work saving outsiders? Did you know he's still at work saving atheists and agnostics and drug addicts? 
Did you know he's still at work saving alcoholics and immigrants? People abuse their spouse and neglect their kids, deadbeat dads. Women who are grieved over decisions they made in their lives in their 10, 20, 30 years ago that they still live with and, and they hold on to as, as a reason that God won't accept you. God will accept you because His Son bore that cost in your place. Church, it's not enough to just be around Jesus. We've got to stand in front of Him. And we've got to see that He's not just a good man. He's the God man who took our place. Do you see where the truth of Jesus' identity is first noticed in all of Mark's gospel? Is, isn't this amazing? Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we go through the entire gospel and the only ones to profess that Jesus is the Son of God are the Father at His baptism and at the transfiguration. Behold, my beloved Son. And it's the demons they recognize that he's the son of God, but no people are recognizing Jesus is God's son who came from heaven. Eternity past, he left to take my place. And here it is in Romans chapter 15, verse 39. Not after he calms the stormy sea. Not after he feeds the 5,000 or the 4,000 or he heals a lame man. Not when he raises a little girl from the dead. It is at the cross where he is proclaimed to be who he is, the son of God. God. You see, church, the cross is the birthplace of faith. It isn't when Jesus gets you out of a jam. It isn't when he rescues your business or makes all your dreams come true that you actually surrender to Jesus. Saving faith arises in the life of a believer when the Holy Spirit causes you, like this Roman centurion, to stand before the cross and he graciously opens your eyes to see that it should have been me on that cross. But it was Jesus. It was Jesus. It was Jesus who took my sin and its judgment so that I could have a share in the Son's union with his the Son of God, on whom rests the unique blessing and love of the Father, chooses not to exalt himself, but to follow a plan of servanthood, indeed of suffering and death, so that through the cross, the world might acknowledge him to be the Son and with him share free and joyful access to the Father. The Roman soldier, have you thought about this? He's seen crucifixions before. He's seen men die on crosses outside of the city before. And yet something the Bible tells us about the way that he breathes his last convicts him that he is reckoning with a man who is exactly who he said he was, the son of God. What was it about that last breath? I don't know. Perhaps his confidence, perhaps his control. But something about his last breath, I believe, declared victory is on the way. God's got this. God's got this. It is finished. It is done. But the question that remains for every single person in this room is, do I belong to the Son? Have I believed in Him?
perhaps today is your day. And in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. We're going to sing about the greatness of our God who says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. If that's your need today, we invite you to come. But I also want to call upon Christians. I want to invite you to come as well. The staff is going to join me in just a moment. We're going to pray publicly for our church for this Easter season. God, we, we talked in staff meeting on Tuesday. We want God to give liberty in this place and overwhelming joy and delight in, a, in an amazing God. We want that to take off and explode in this place. And maybe you would join us in a public dis demonstration this morning. God, we need you. We are hungry for you. We are desperate for you. We want you to move in my Sunday school class. We want you to save my family. I want you to save my colleague. I want my life to count in the kingdom of God. And I'm tired of waiting. And I want you to show up in my life. If that's, your, if that's the cry of your heart this morning, then would you be so kind as to join us in beseeching God this morning that he would show up in our lives in a special way beginning this Easter season. Maybe, maybe you're burdened this morning that you're not burdened. Maybe you say, my life's cold, my walk's cold, and I, I hear it, and I know something should be there, but it's not there. And I want God to break my heart in a fresh way. So maybe I'll just come and ask God to break my heart in a fresh way and see if he answers my prayer. Maybe you're burdened for a lost family member or a colleague that you've been sharing the gospel with. Whatever your need this morning, I know 